ministry, and then um, we'll turn our attention to Psalm 72 this morning. So if you want to look in uh, your Bible, Psalm 72 is where we're going to be. Um, uh, Sarah and I met in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I was there um, working in ministry. She was in grad school. Um, From there, uh, we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I went to seminary. After Charlotte, we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and at in Tulsa, I was on campus at the University of Tulsa uh, working in uh, college ministry with a ministry called Reformed University Fellowship. And uh, RUF is the acronym there. Uh, RUF is a college ministry um, that is on 169 campuses around the country, and we are uh, growing uh, pretty quickly, actually. And um, last June, uh, I kind of ended my tenure at the University of Tulsa And I still work with RUF now, though uh, I'm in a role that's called an an area coordinator. And what that means is um, I am essentially I oversee the ministry on campus that happens in Oklahoma, uh, Arkansas, Memphis, which is not a state, uh, Memphis, Mississippi and Louisiana. And so we have 16 campuses within that region. And I am uh, for those of you in the business world or whatever, I am ministry middle management. Uh, so I do a lot of different things. Uh, the primary thing that I do is I am a pastor to the staff throughout those states. So I travel a good bit, especially during the semester. Um, I'm in the car and occasionally on a plane um, flying or driving to those schools so that um, I can give, uh, as, as much as I can, popping in periodically, give pastoral care to those um, the people on the ground on campus. And um, besides that, we do a lot of um, initiatives with our, our expansion around the country with development work and, and all kinds of other stuff that are down in the weeds that you probably don't care about. But um, it's an important work. I tell myself this matters, this matters. Um, even if it's not the, the front lines, you know, on the campus with students like it was, which both are wonderful in their own way. Um, the Lord has us here in this next season, um, and we're excited about it. Uh, We moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in conjunction with that job change. Um, Given my being on the road a lot, my wife Sarah is from Baton Rouge, and she has a lot of family down there that kind of help when I'm out on the road with the kids and such. So that's a little bit about us. Let me uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll I'm going to intro the text, and we'll read it and talk about it for a few minutes together. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, this time together this morning when we can gather as your people and worship you. Uh, We thank you that you've called us here through your scriptures, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Um, we thank you that the uh, enduring nature and character of your word um, is true, and it, it is inerrant and infallible and inspired, and it will never change because it comes from you, the only unchanging one that has ever been or ever will be. Uh, we thank you for um, the opportunity to lift our voices and pray. Um, Lord, we don't take it lightly that we live in a land where we can do that, and um, we just want to thank you for that. Lord, as we look here at this passage um, that you gave us many, many, many years ago, um, we pray that we wouldn't just see words on a page, but we would see Jesus in these words. Um, We pray that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our heart to see it, the ears so that we could hear it, um, and that your spirit would come and and change us. That's our only hope this morning, um, is that you do a work beyond what I could do. Christ, then we pray these things. Amen. In in 1997, a strapping young Leonardo DiCaprio uh, stood on the bow of a great ship called the Titanic, and as the wind was blowing through his long, flowy, beautiful hair, And with his mate right there behind him, he put his hands up in the air on the front of that ship, and he said what? I'm the king of the world! Right? And it was beautiful because he's a beautiful person. And it was this idyllic setting as the Titanic (laughs) crashed and went to the bottom of the sea. 
Now, there's something that's true and there's something that's not true about Leonardo DiCaprio saying that on the bow of the ship. The true thing is that he felt like the king of the world. He was out there. He, he had all these emotions going through him. It was this great time. It was a wonderful setting. He felt like the king of the world. The not true thing is that he was not the king of the world. Uh, there uh, have been many true kings throughout the world in different countries and lands around the world. Leonardo DiCaprio was not one of them. But though there have been many true kings and many false kings, many crazies who thought they were kings, there is only one good, true, lasting king. And what we're doing this morning as we look at Psalm 72 is we're going to look at this psalm that is, it's called a royal psalm. And there are a handful of these throughout the book of Psalms. And a royal psalm is, is really what it says. It's a psalm that's all about the king. It's all about the king. And these can be kind of weird for us to read. Um, because, you know, we don't, we don't do the king thing, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, so we have to think about what was it like to be in that land in that day, to be the people of Israel as Solomon was writing this psalm for them. He himself was king of Israel at one time. He may have been king of Israel when he wrote this psalm. I think maybe he wasn't given some of the language that he uses here, kind of in the third person. Um, but as he's uh, as he's writing these words, which were meant to be sung or chanted or something within the congregation of Israel, he goes on and on and on in flowery, poetic, majestic language about the king of Israel. I mean, on and on and on. It's like a, a prayer at the presidential prayer breakfast. It just like, it doesn't stop. It just keeps going and it's kind of awkward. And you're like, well, is this a prayer or a sermon? And, um, but he's excited. He's excited. If you look right there in, in your passage, we'll see it on the screen in just a second. There are, there are more exclamation points in this psalm than there are in a text string between, in, uh, between extroverts. It's just like, oh, I love you and I love you and ex- exclamation points all over the place. King Solomon is, he is so excited to be lifting these prayers and petitions to the Lord on behalf of the king. So what I want us to do as we look at this is to have in our minds this one this one phrase. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And as we look and consider what Solomon is saying about the king, that's what's echoing through his mind and through the minds of anyone who lived under a king because they knew that was true. That if you had a bad king, the kingdom went down. If you had a good king, the kingdom flourished. So let's look at Psalm 72. Uh, maybe in, in, in your Bible, I've got it up here on the screen in Tiny print, I realize, but here we go. Psalm 72. It's a a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and on tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. 
May the people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This is God's word. We thank him for it. Uh, This summer, uh, I've been watching a series on uh, Netflix uh, called The Crown. And um, appropriately named, The Crown is a show about... Uh, it's a period drama about the king, the royal, the royal family of England. And there's a scene in that show, which is, uh, you know, a dramatic ad- adaptation of history, where uh, Queen Mary is on, seemingly on her deathbed. She's kind of in the last stage of her life. And her, her daughter, Queen Elizabeth, has just ascended to the throne herself. And uh, Queen Mary had written Queen Elizabeth, younger Queen Elizabeth, a letter about uh, you know, being royal and being on the throne as the Queen of England. And there's this scene where Queen Elizabeth comes into the bedroom of Queen Mary and she pulls out this note and she's asking her, her mom some questions about it. Hey, you say this, what do you mean? You say this, what do you mean? You said this about the monarchy and it's a calling. What do you mean? And Queen Elizabeth uh, says this. She says, monarchy is God's sacred mission to grace and dignify the earth, to give ordinary people an ideal to strive toward, an example of nobility and duty to raise them to raise them in their wretched lives. Uh, pompous, perhaps, um, to think that is the role, uh, the only role of a queen or king. Um, but here's a, a question that I want us to think about, roll around in our minds for a minute. Um, do you need a king, and that was a queen, but do you need a, a king like that? Someone who, in their, their thought about ruling and reigning, are that they're going to be the person who strides around the land and who lives such a graceful and dignified life that everyone wants to be like them. And that their role in this world is to, to raise the poor, wretched people uh, into a, a higher form of living. Is that what you sit around and dream about in a leader? Is someone who just is awesome, and who is yet another example of the life maybe you should be living, but you're probably not living. No. (laughs) Ain't nobody want that, right? Nobody wants someone who is yet just another picture of something they can't be or that they can't attain. Most of us live under the weight of that already, right? Maybe whether it's you're uh, stuck in a job that that you wanted to be out of decades ago, or maybe it's just your situation's hard and, and you can't find a way to get out of it, and so you're trying to be faithful in that place without any real means of getting out of that place. And someone to come along and say, hey, here's what you should be doing, and I'll prance around the land, and, and you should be more like me. It's just not that helpful, frankly. Uh, thankfully, we turn to God's Word, and there's a better word for us in it, because there's a better king out there. There's a different kind of king entirely. And Solomon gives us a picture of that king this morning as he turns our eyes and our attention to the good king. So let's look at this this morning. There's three um, things I want us to consider. There's a handout that uh, I printed up. It may be floating around and maybe sitting in a pile or in the trash can in the back. I'm not sure at this point. Um, But I'll have most of the stuff up here that you can look at um, for your reference if you want to. So let's first talk about the king that you never knew you needed, the king you never knew you needed. Uh, Let me state the obvious. Uh, We live in America, and in America, our beloved union, uh, we don't really do the king thing. (laughs) We don't do the king thing. In fact, just uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, we set out in 98-degree weather in bag chairs in somebody's lawn with uh, overpriced watermelon, and we detonated small bombs in our front yard, hoping it wouldn't burn down our house, to celebrate 
the fact that we don't have a king, right? We, <laughs> that's right. Um, we live independently from a king. Now, we have a president, and we have democratic leaders and all this stuff, but we don't do the king thing. And in fact, um, the state of Virginia, one of the earliest states in our union, when it was um, setting up its statehood and making its flag, this is the picture of their flag. Um, Six super tyrannous. <laughs> Death always to tyrants is what that means. And you see the crown sitting off to the side there. That is what we think about kings. <laughs> They're always tyrants. They're evil. And so anything to not have a king. And so what do I mean when I look and say that the, the, the king that King Solomon talks about in Psalm 72, he's a king you never knew you needed because we don't often think about needing a king. So let's look at this. Um, I want to imagine, I want you to imagine if you lived in a kingdom um, like the people did back in this day, what kind of king would you need to be ruling over your land in order for it to flourish and for things to go well? Because remember, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. If I was a, a, still a betting man, uh, I would guess that any list you could come up with about the kind of king you needed is thoroughly covered here in Psalm 72. So what I want us to do is I'm going to look at four things that this psalm talks about in terms of the good king that they needed. Now, I'm not going to reread all the verses because uh, we just read the passage, but the references are there in the handout and I've got them on the screen. Uh, the first thing I want us to see is that four times in verses 1, 2, 3, and 7, Solomon cries out for a king who both rules with righteousness but also rewards righteousness. Righteous living. Okay, a king that rules with righteousness. If you were a, a Jew back then, a good Jew, um, and you leaned kind of more conservative in your political ideations, this is the kind of king you would have wanted. Someone who is upright and is moral and, and is righteous himself and who rules with righteousness. This would have been your dream king. And Solomon is praying and asking God that the king of Israel would be that. But he goes on and he says something else. He, he, he prays and he asks God that the king, there would be a king who would bring justice for the oppressed. There would be a king who cares for the poor. Now, if you were a good Jew back then who maybe leaned a more left in your political ideations, you're standing up right here in these verses and you're saying, yes, that's what we need. A king who pays attention to the lowly and who is doing everything possible to care for the oppressed around us. A king who, who not just looks at the poor and the oppressed, but who does something to elevate their position, right? But it goes even beyond that. Eleven times King Solomon prays for peace in the land, for blessing and peace in the land. And all the, the verses are listed there. He is looking and he's realizing in order for the kingdom to flourish, we need a king who is concerned with the, the, the well-being of this place. And, and that means putting asunder all of their enemies through ruling and through conquering or through peace treaters or whatever that meant back in the day. And through that, the land would receive blessing. But he's not done yet. There's a whole other category of prosperity there. See, um, King Solomon had listened to James Carville's advice to Bill Clinton in the election in the 90s. He looked and said, hey man, it's the economy, stupid. You've got to talk about the economy. That's what everybody cares about. It's the great unifying thing for all peoples at all times. So Solomon is praying that King Solomon, or he's praying that the king would bring great economic prosperity to the land, to the people. I spent uh, eight years, as I mentioned, on a college campus, and uh, one thing that's true about uh, people in that age and stage of life, kind of that 18 to 22, 25-year-old range, and again, it's not just for college students, but really anyone who's coming of age into that um, place in their life, is that um, whether through just uh, brain development or getting out from under parents and living on your own, whatever it is that's going on, um, they begin to realize that there is a lot going on in the world, that um, there are complex realities in this world which are... 
um, hard to, to see. They're difficult to understand. Um, they're maybe uh, enraging as you consider how little is being done to maybe solve some of these things. And so all these things are coming together, and it produces in college students this, this desire to, to do something, this militant nature that we've got we've to solve that problem. We've got to, uh, you know, maybe it's we've got to elect this person, or we've got to support that effort, or sign this petition, or oust that other leader, or send money over there, or, or do whatever. But they start caring, caring in a way they hadn't until that at that point in their life, and I, I would assume that mo- that would be true of most of you also. But at some point, you begin to care more about the big things in this world, whether it's here in America and our own leaders, or some geopolitical reality and thing out there. What are what are those students? What were you crying out for at that time in your life? What are what are they in need of in that moment? I would suggest that they are in need of someone who not only cares about those things, but who also can do something about them. They don't just need someone who can sympathize about the problems in the world, but they need someone who's got the power to actually do that. Because you think about it, if you just have sympathy, you're an impotent leader. But if you just have power, you're an oppressive leader. So they need both. Someone who cares and who can act. They need a good king. That is the definition of a king, is someone who knows his people, knows what's going on, but also can do something about it. And I want to suggest that you and I actually need that too. Whether or not you ever knew you needed a good king, you need a good king. Yes, someone who cares about those big things in the world, and they are there. They're definitely there. But you also need a good king who looks down into the the intricacies of your life, and who sees your depression, and who sees your child's waywardness, who sees your own wayward, who sees your sadness and your loneliness, who sees the, the financial difficulties that you're in, who sees the class that, that your child's failing or the bully that they're having to, to endure at school. You need someone who sees all of those things, your sicknesses, your infertility, your doubts, whatever it is, and who doesn't just see the big things, but who sees those little things and who can do something about it and who cares and who says, I am the good king. And look, y'all, the tension we feel as people, you know, I would guess most of us in here who are seeking to trust the good king Jesus is we're, we're asking him when. <laughs> We know you can do it. We know you care. But why is it not happening? And that's the prayer that's been echoed throughout time in Scripture. The Psalms are full of the phrase, How long, O Lord, must we endure? How long will we suffer? How long will this go on? How long will our enemies oppress us? How long? And we sit in that tension of having to trust in the good king and yet wait on his good kingdom to come in our lives and around us. Uh, Some of your summer goals, uh, I'm sure, are are along the lines of... uh, Maybe wanting to eat better. Maybe you want to eat cleaner. Whatever that means, I don't do it, but I hear people want to eat clean these days. Um, maybe you want to exercise, or maybe you want to uh, practice more hospitality and get people into your home as a means of caring for them. Um, those are great. Those are wonderful things. Mine is far less noble. Uh, my summer goal was to watch all 24, 23 of the Marvel movies, um, the hero movies, and uh, I'm about halfway through, and it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I had seen several of them periodically, but I, I was missing the storyline. I wanted to catch the storyline because as a pastor, you got to have stories to tell. And um, so anyway, one thing that is so fascinating, and I get it, one of the things that made this the, the highest grossing film, of all, film series of all time is that when you watch these hero movies or any kind of movie that, that sets up a hero in it, 
one of the things that's so fascinating about these movies is that in that hero figure, you have someone who, who can absolutely do something about problems. They take on this alternate personality, this alternate being, and they're powerful, and they can fly, and they can lift up heavy things, and all the things they do. But what do they do? They go get into the weeds of the world. They go throw cars off of victims of crashes. They, they break in, and they, 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 they take out the enemies and the evil people. So they have power, but they also care. The people in those movies need that, but you and I do too. We need someone who can set the wrong things in this world to right. And we also need someone who can set the wrong and the disordered things in our own lives right. And Solomon is praying for the people back then. And friends, as the word of God works, he's praying that for us now down through time. He's praying for the good king to come. And we have a better word today than they did back then because the good king has come. And he is already ruling and reigning in this world right now. And as I get as I said, that produces some tension for us as we wait on that, that kingdom to come fully. But we see in Jesus that there is a king, the good king, who's already ruling. Um, to borrow words from the author T.H. White, he wrote a book called The Once and Future King. The Once and Future King. And um, he lays out different aspects to kingship. Well, I want to set up um, Jesus as that once and future king that we see here in Psalm 72. Okay, So rather than... Um, what a fun thing to do sometimes in these messianic royal psalms is to just look at all the different ways fully that Jesus comes in and fulfills every promised thing that Solomon is praying for in these psalms. To a T, he does it. But for the sake of time, I wanted to just kind of go back to the categories we looked at a second ago and see just examples of how it is that Jesus is doing uh, these four things in his rule and reign. So his ruling with righteousness. Uh, remember, this is what... Um, maybe our more conservative uh, Jewish friends would have wanted a king who was upright and moral and who did the right thing and who ruled rightly. Uh, Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. And in his letter, uh, in reflecting on Jesus' life and who he was um, and what he did, he says this in 1 Peter 2, that he committed, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Was there ever a more righteous king? No. Never was a more righteous king than Jesus. When he was mocked, he took... When he went to the cross... Friends, he could have taken himself down, but he didn't because it was love that kept him up there. He was on a mission to redeem the world. And so Jesus was the fully righteous, moral, perfect king in that way. He ruled with righteousness because he was righteous. It wasn't something he did. It was something that he was. But look at the second category there. That Jesus not only ruled with righteousness, but he cares for the poor and the oppressed. There's, there's I mean, so many examples of this in the Gospels. You could pick, you could pick one of any of them. Uh, I, I thought about the the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, or the man born blind in John 9. But but I want to think about the man who, he had leprosy. And Mark picks up the story in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. And I should have put it up there, but I didn't. But um, So I'll summarize it. Um, Jesus is going along, and there's a man who's had leprosy in, in, in that day. According to Jewish custom, leprosy meant you couldn't be part of the normal worshiping, practicing community, and so you had to be outside the camp. And so here's Jesus, who hears of this man with leprosy, as there were many of them. And he doesn't, though he could have, he doesn't just 
like throw out a word over the wall to those people. Jesus goes to where this man is, which was taboo number one, and he doesn't from that place look at the man and say, you need to be well, or you can be well. Jesus goes up to this man with leprosy, who people would not touch, they would have nothing to do with, and he put his hand where? Right onto his wounds, to his leprous body, and he healed him. Now, aside from the the miraculous nature of the healing, what is so compelling and powerful about that? Is that in that we see not just the Jesus who can do something, we see the Jesus who is getting into the intricacies, into those most shameful aspects of that man's existence, the thing that had caused his separation from the community. And Jesus says, I see that, I know that, and I'm entering in to heal you at that very place. And that's why we can see that Jesus is the king who cares about all those little things in your life. He does. That's who he is. He doesn't stand far off on the royal throne and, and give orders, miraculous orders may they be. He comes and gets into the, the nook and the cranny of your life. He says, I see it. I'm healing that. If not now in this world, one day fully, finally, I will heal that. So far, so good. That is the once aspect to the once and future king. As we look at these next two... Um, this is where we're, we're called to exercise our faith muscles somewhat. Because uh, when we look at peace and prosperity in the land, uh, we don't really see that. Because really, part of that is that God's kingdom right now is not confined to a land, right? It's a spiritual kingdom at this point where he's gathering his church and his people are being saved and all of that. He's building up his people right now. The land thing will come. It will come. So as we look at these final two promises that Solomon talked about in praying for that king... We now engage in that the future aspect of this. So the first is the peace uh, and the blessing throughout the land. I'm going to look at Revelation 21, that we could look at other places, and I'm going to see what, what God says to John about this coming peace. I'll read it. Uh, I didn't put it up there. Sorry. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now I know Brad loves the book of Revelation. He's got a PhD on it. So you no doubt know that when when... God says this through John, the sea is no more. What he means is there's no more warring. There's no more fighting. The sea was the picture and the place of, of destruction and chaos in the Old Testament. And so when he, when he evokes that image, he's saying there is finally peace. And he goes on. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. You talk about peace. What will that be like? No more death? Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I don't know what your thoughts are about a peaceful world, but if they aren't encompassed with that, uh, you've got some, some messed up ideas about peace. No more tears. No more crying. No more warring. No more evil. God with us. It's ultimate peace. And it's coming one day, someday. It's coming even now incrementally, but one day, Sunday, it will be here fully. And then finally, the second aspect of that future um, king who's already ruling is the prosperity of the land. I'm going to go on in Revelation 21. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, a jasper clear as crystal. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. I like to work on houses, and well, sometimes I do, and then I get to a point where I don't. Um, but y'all, the measuring tape was gold. <laughs> That's how much prosperity there will be in this land. The measuring rod was of gold. And he goes on. 
uh, to measure the city and its gates and walls. The wall was built of jasper instead of sheetrock. While the city was pure gold like clear glass, it did, there was no more concrete, it's just gold. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper and then sapphire and, and third agate and then all these other ones I don't know how to pronounce. And the twelve gates were, were twelve pearls. And each gate was made of a pearl and the streets were pure gold like transparent glass. By the light of the Lord will nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nation. Solomon, in that, in Psalm 72, especially toward the end, he starts talking about how the kings of Sheba and Seba will bring in their riches, and how kings will bring in their riches, and all the nations will call Israel blessed. And what God is telling John in this apocalyptic vision and revelation is, yes, that's that's true. That day is coming. It's not here yet. Don't, don't fool yourself. It's not here yet. But King Jesus has come. And when he came the first time, he inaugurated his kingdom. And one day it's coming fully and finally. But right now we wait. And it can be a frustrating wait. It will be a frustrating wait. It can be a painful wait. It can be a discouraging wait. But friends, Christians have been people who are, who are never those who take our, our cues from our circumstance. We take our cues from our king. Because if we look just here on a horizon, it can be all those things. Difficult. But when we lift our eyes to Jesus and we, we, when we see him in scripture, when we see him at work in people's lives, and when it's part of the reason we do this thing called church is so that we can get together and remind ourselves of what's true. It's part of the reason why you have community and why you try to pray for each other is so you can see God at work in each other's lives and have those glimpses of, yes, the kingdom is coming, even if we don't see it fully and finally. So as we, as we look at this last part here, I want to suggest that in thinking about Jesus as the king that you never knew you needed, but also the king who's already reigning, I want you to see that he's actually the good king that when you think about it, that you've always won. He is the good king you've always won. Is there anything that you want in this world that Jesus isn't promising to give you in some way one day? You want happiness? Finally, yeah, there will be that. You want to be okay financially and stop not having to worry about the bills? There will be that. You want people to be at peace? There will be that. You want to see your loved ones who have gone on to, in Christ and who have already passed? There will be that. Anything you can imagine will be in glory. And, and for those things that, that aren't, such as loved ones who may not trust in Christ on this side, we can trust that Jesus is good even in the midst of something that doesn't make sense like that. So the good king You've always wanted. Think about the phrase I said earlier. As so go, or so goes the king. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. I want you to imagine uh, a world where uh, it's full of people who have been brought into this kingdom. It's full of people who don't um, look just at a king who, again, as I mentioned with Queen Mary, a king who prances around and shows off grace and dignity and asks other people to be like him or like her. It's, it's full of people who have been ransomed and redeemed by the king. Because Jesus was the king who didn't just stay up in his lofty quarters. He was the king who came and did what? He laid down his life. He, he emptied himself of everything but love, Paul says in Philippians. That he, he gave up his position of power and of authority to become a servant to all. There was no one beneath Jesus' care. Think about a world, think about a kingdom where the thing that people had in common was that they had met that king. They had been personally transformed by who he was and what he had done for them in, in forgiving their sins and bringing them into his kingdom. And then as he does that, he puts little seeds of his spirit in their hearts, in their lives, and that as they grow and as they mature, those seeds they grow up in these people and that these people themselves become like little kings who are following the good king. And as we seek about our lives and as we move into work and as we move into our town and our schools or our, our families, wherever it is that you live and inhabit, you take the seed of the king with you and you, and you 
exhibit His, His likeness in the very normal things of your life. In the way you think about others, in the way you think about your money and your possessions. You don't have to hold on to them. You can give them away. In the way you think about your job, it's not just a job, it's a calling. However minute and, and seemingly unimportant it is, God has put you there with the skills to do that job. And you take the king with you out into the kingdom. But don't be, don't miss me, don't be misunderstood. It starts so small, so insignificant. Jesus himself said that when the kingdom comes, it's like a mustard. It's just the smallest of seeds, you don't really see it. It's out there, and it gets thrown on the grass, and you forget about it. But what? Over time, as the rain comes, as the Spirit brings nourishment, it blossoms and it grows into something impressive. It gives shade that feeds people and all the things that vegetation does. I want, to, I want us to close with this picture. Um, several hundred years ago, in a small uh, rural county, county, countryside in England uh, named uh, Herfordshire, um, there was a, a woman who, she herself was not, um, she was not a believer. And over the, and she made it very plain over the course of her life. And she would, um, she had many friends who were trying to talk to her about the Lord and, and spent their days doing that. But to her dying death, she did not trust Christ. And she therefore didn't believe in, in life after death or the, rex, the resurrection of the body or any of this. And as she said, um, she said, uh, I no more believe in that than that a tree will rise out of my tomb after I die. Now that's a bizarre statement when you just take that on its own. But here's what happened. That as she was being laid to rest in, in the countryside in England, some of those friends threw acorns into her coffin, her marble coffin. You know, marble's heavy. I've done a few bathroom projects. You don't want to order marble. Marble, it's really heavy. And so this marble casket went into the ground. And today you can go to the countryside of England. And what is coming up out of that tomb, out of that marble casket, but a huge four-trunked oak. Why? How? Because the life is in the seed. It's in the seed. And as God takes his kingdom seed, as the good king places his seeds in the hearts of his people, life goes forth. And as we as his people this morning, if that's you, as we take that life out into the world, we begin to be a fulfillment of what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? on earth as it is in heaven. That even as we await the full kingdom one day when Jesus comes back, right now we participate in the inbreaking of God's kingdom in our world right now. And friends, that's something we can get excited about. That's something that you can look and say, that's what I want. That's the king I need. Jesus is the king we already have. And that's what I want to be true of my life and true of the church in this world and true of God's kingdom as it goes forth, that it would be a blessing to people around us, that we could lay down our lives for them, serve them, give of our possessions, give of our time, not for our own good, not for our own status and power, but for the life of the world. And that's what Jesus invites us to. That's what he calls. And my prayer for us this morning, I'll pray it in just a minute, is that you know him as the good king, that you would know that he is the one who laid down his life for you. Forgive your sins to declare you righteous, even though your life has not been that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you are that good king. And Lord, we uh, if we believe that, we believe that by faith. And even that faith that we believe it by is a gift, you tell us. And so we thank you, Lord. There's no reason we should be proud about that, that we're believers and that others aren't. But Lord, let us use that faith and let us use this kingdom that's come in our lives to serve and to, to love others and to tell them about you, the good king. I pray that you'd empower us by your spirit as we go out from here, um, that we would take um, your word with us, not just as some sort of rule book or instructions for living, um, but as the very source of life itself. And as we see you at work in it, that you would be at work in us. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't yet know you as the good king, they would uh, turn from themselves and their self-sufficient, their seeming self-sufficient, and they would turn to you, the one who would lovingly conquer, set their heart ablaze for good. For good. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.